Hello, everyone. I'm Bill Raggio. I'm a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Long War Journal. And this is Generation Jihad, the podcast that explores the vast global landscape of the global jihad, or what used to be known as the war on terror. Um, Today, uh, we have a pretty interesting topic here. We're going to discuss uh, Somalia and specifically an individual named Fahad Yassin. He's the controversial former head of Somalia's National Intelligence and Security Agency, or we'll call it NISA. Yassin made news uh, over a week ago after he publicly disclosed for the first time that he was a senior leader of al-Ittihad al-Islamiyah and remains a committed Salafist. Uh, To discuss this, we have Caleb Weiss, my uh, friend and colleague. Um, Caleb is a senior analyst at the Bridgeway Foundation, as well as a research analyst at FDD's Long War Journal and a frequent contributor. Caleb, thanks for, for joining us today. Thank you for having me on again. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure, Caleb. Yeah, we've been chomping at the bit to, to, to get this podcast recorded and uh, really glad we were able to pull it off. Uh, so, Caleb, before we get into his deeper background, his history over the last two decades, tell us about Yassin's recent political background in the in the Farmajo regime. That He's the former president for the listeners, the former president of uh, Somalia. Yeah, of course. Um, I mean, Fahad Yassin's a very... I don't know, very controversial, very, you know, murky background kind of kind of individual. Um, but for the purposes of just understanding who he is, let this 10,000 feet, you know, look before we dive in. Um, he was the former campaign manager of Mohammed Abdullahi Mohammed, aka Farmajo, the, the former president of Somalia. Um, in 2017, after Farmajo was, you know, won the Somali election, became president, um, or yeah, being president, he, he Yassin became Farmajo's chief of staff. Um, a year later, Farmajo promoted him to the deputy director of NISA, their intelligence agency. Um, a year after that, in 2019, he's promoted to the entire head of NISA, um, which he held that position for two years um, until he was sacked by the prime minister, Mohammed Hussein Rabwe. Um, he was sacked over this political road over the mysterious disappearance of a female NISA officer. Um, she disappeared. Uh, one camp was accusing Shabab of kidnapping and murdering her. Shabab itself denied having anything to do with it. The other camp and the Somali government said that it was actually Fahad Yassin and Farmajo wanting to get rid of her due to her investigations into their corruption. So, uh, Caleb, uh, just to stop you one second, uh, what, when, what year exactly was Yassin dismissed as the head of NISA? Yes, yeah, so that was mid-2021. So, summer of last year um which i mean he was dismissed over this political row over the mysterious disappearance and subsequent killing of a female nisa agent um one side of the somali government said that you know this was shabab um which shabab does regularly you know kill nisa people but shabab denied it they they full on they released a statement saying that we had nothing to do with it um, another camp of the Somali government said that, you know, it was Fahad Yassin and Farmajo wanted her gone because of her investigations into their, their corruption. Now, one just one quick point. I'm sure you're going to agree with me on this. If not only did Shabab not claim credit for the um, for Tahil's death, that's the female Misa agent, but they actually, like, as you noted, they issued a denial and Shabab 
would happily dance over uh, dance on the grave of killing a female NISA agent. They publicized the their assassinations of every NISA agent that they come across. Which they just released a video on that a couple, I think, last month or the month before, which we covered at the Long War Journal. Exactly. You know, look, Shabab, like Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, particularly AQAP, um, they these two groups love to out what they call the spies or the pe- the intelligence, the people that have penetrated them and provided intelligence to the West to conduct strikes um, or to to target them for groups like Shabab and groups like um, AQAP. These are the, the biggest enemies, the biggest traitors to them. And there is no way Shabab would not um, claim credit for that. So this had to be some type of internal machinations. Um, without a doubt. Yeah, it, it's it's super strange. I mean, the investigations are still ongoing, but I, I think most, maybe not most people, but a lot of people still kind of lean on the side that it probably was on the Yassine from my show camp of just, which we'll get into why this is later, but just for now, we'll put a pin in that and come back to it. But uh, important to note here that after uh, Yassine was ousted at NISA um, late last year, or mid last year, um, he just became Farmajo's, uh, you know, national security advisor. So he still was a high up, you know, national security role in the Somali government, even after NISA. Um, so even after he leaves that, he was still being the right hand man of Farmajo and still doing a lot of their more political dealings. Um, and then uh, after Farmajo loses the election last month, uh, May 2022, um, Fahad Yassin moves and moves is in quote marks to to turkey um i think that should be read as as he flees to turkey i think he understands that you know a lot of people probably want to prosecute him so he he's now in turkey and is that a common occurrence for when the in somalia when the opposition leader you know when the the opposition parties goes in the lot do they typically leave or do they typically stick around and keep playing the you know the political game Depends on the person <laughs> and what they've done. But I mean, obviously, the Somali diaspora is all over the world, and that's a result of the civil war and everything. But um, he left regardless, real quick. yeah, he left real quick and it, he goes to a, you know, not so, I don't know, friendly partner. Turkey's also doing a lot of meddling in Somalia. So it's a little, still a little weird. All right, let's move on and discuss his, uh, his background, his early days. Who is he? Where did he come from? What is his education? Right. Which uh, I mentioned this earlier, his background's still super murky. I mean, this is a guy that really shies away from the camera. He doesn't like to do interviews. He doesn't like to do anything like that. So, I mean, the last time that he spoke to anyone prior to, you know, just a week ago was in 2012. Um, so a lot of his background is still unknown, but it's it's reported that he attended the Al-Iman University in Yemen. Um, and potentially other Islamic schools in Pakistan, but for sure Al Iman in Yemen. Um, which, Bill, you know, you know a lot about the Al Iman University in Yemen. It's got quite the reputation. Yeah. So the, the you know for for those of you who are not aware, that's the Al Iman University. It's the basically Yemen's version of the. It's known as the University of Jihad. It's uh, led by Sheikh Abdullah Majid Al Zindani. He's listed as a specially designated global terrorist. Um, he was, uh, an advisor to Osama bin Laden, deeply linked to, into the jihad numerous, um, I'll put students in quote marks of the, um, of the university jihad or Almian university, 
um, like Abdul Muttalib, the the individual, the Nigerian who tried to blow up uh, an airliner over Christmas in Detroit. Detroit, I forget what year that was. It was like 2009. Yeah. Um, I mean, I remember going down the list of the um, uh, Anwar al-Waki uh, went to the, uh, the American who was killed in a, a drone strike, who was al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula's um, top ideologue, who, who was very popular, inspired numerous jihadists. Attack. He was very effective in recruiting Western jihadists. Because he he also lived he lived in the United States he understood the West and he spoke English very well and he was very appealing to to um, individuals who were inclined to become jihadists from the West and you know we could go on and on there's other individuals so you know right uh, it's, it's, it's it's kind of interesting that this man would go to such a you know notorious you know university of jihad as you put it so first red flag right there yeah. oh and by the way Caleb Zindani. Um, after uh, the University of Jihad was closed in 2014, um, by after the Houthis took over Sana'a, the capital of Yemen, he fled to Turkey as well. So I wonder if he and uh, Yassin are wrapping <laughs> some tea. Ah, I did, but <laughs> which speaking of Turkey, this is this is actually where you know part of this this why we're talking about Yassin right now. So in Turkey, in his refuge in Turkey, he he publicly admitted for the first time in his, again, his first press conference or first interview since 2012, that he was a senior member of Awatihad al-Islamiya, um, and then Awatihad's political wing, Awatisam. But first of all, Awatihad al-Islamiya was sort of like the, the proto-Shabab. It was you know heavily supported, trained, funded, whatever, by bin Laden, by al-Qaeda in the early 1990s. Um, it fought against, you know, various different clan militias and other militias in Somalia during the Civil War. Um, it was sort of largely defeated militarily by Ethiopia and southern Somalia in, in, I think, 1997. But, you know, remnant cells remained, especially in southern Somalia. And then a lot of them moved to northern Somalia and especially Somaliland. Um, and, you know, a lot of these cells would eventually become the nucleus of what became you know, the militant wing or the more radical wing of the ICU, the Islamic Courts Union, um, this large coalition that controlled much of Somalia until 2006. Um, and of course, modern day Shabab formed out of the ICU. And a lot of the same leaders that were in Al-Tihad became the leaders of Shabab. Um, but again, to caveat, Yassin did say that after, you know, he was a member of the political wing, Al-Tihad, which Al-Tihad is a legitimate Salafist party in Somalia. It, it, it's, it's not necessarily violent. It's actually renounced Shabab on a couple of occasions. Um, but it's still notable the, that, that Yassin was part of Al-Tihad for a while. Um, then around 2003, Yassin starts making more public appearances. And what I mean by that is he's openly writing. He becomes you know a journalist at this time. He's writing for a few different websites. Um, but I think perhaps most notably, the main place he was writing for was actually an Al-Tihad linked website. Um, it's another red flag. <laughs> but then uh, two years after that, so this is around 2003, around 2005, he starts becoming a reporter for Al Jazeera, um, which he he becomes Al Jazeera's main Somali correspondent. He's reporting on you know various different happenings in Somalia for Al Jazeera, and he stays with Al Jazeera until 2014. Um, but during his time there, you know, he frequently got access to higher level jihadis. Um, he did, you know, a pretty infamous interview with Hassan al-Turki, which Hassan al-Turki was a, you know, al-Qaeda trained jihadist. Um, 
he also did interviews with other, you know, Shabab leaders when they first started, you know, to come about in you know, the mid 2000s. Um, and some of his reports were very critical of Somalia's then transitional governments. So before there was the federal government, so Somalia there was the 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 TFGs, the transitional federal federal governments of, of Somalia. And yeah, I'm going to interrupt you really quick. As Sano Turkey, I mean, he was as Al Qaeda as Al Qaeda gets. The U.S. tried to t- target him numerous times in drone strikes. He wound up dying in natural causes. I think somewhere around 2014 or 15. Um, this was a guy who just didn't give out interviews to anyone. He was, um, I, I, we were talking and I, I think I said to you something like, it'd be like trying to a Western journalist trying to get an interview with like Hockey Mullah Masood, the head of the, then the first, the, the second Amir leader of the Pakistani Taliban. Like he wasn't that accessible to journalists. Um, they're very guarded individuals, um, people who value their security, who understand that they're on the hit list. And granting access to journal, you know, using it to journalists, um, jihadists are very, very skeptical. They believe everyone is out to get them, people, especially individuals who survive as long as people like Turkey. So, you know, the fact that he's able to land an interview like that, I'm not saying that means that he's uh, that the you seems a, a jihadist. It's just another red flag that goes up when you start. No, and it's certainly he made these connections when he was part of Awati Had. Um, you know, Hassan al-Turkey was a member of that. You know, the other Shabab leaders we interviewed were also members of Awati Had. It's, it's very likely it's more of just he made those connections during his time in that group rather than anything more nefarious than that. Just a, just a caveat. Um, but they trusted then, him enough. Right, exactly. Um, right. And really, it was after this. So he leaves Al Jazeera in 2014. And this is when he starts entering Somali politics. Um, he's, I think he had like a low-level post during the first, you know, uh, administration of Hassan Sheikh, the, who's actually now the current president. Um, but it really wasn't until 2016 that Fahad Yassin started, you know, running campaigns, running low-level campaigns for Farmajo, you know, trying to get people to vote for him in, in the 2017 election. Um, after Farmajo wins, Yassin gets promoted to chief of staff at Villa Somalia, which is where you know the, the president's office essentially in, in, in Mogadishu. Um, so really, he went from you know a reporter to a high-level Somali politician, um, which a lot of critics in Somalia, or Somali critics of Yassin, have questioned that of. It's, it's it's a little weird that this guy had no political experience, becomes you know such a high level member of the Somali cabinet, but and not know, just that, uh, Caleb becomes the the head of intelligence. I mean, right? I'm not which sure. I was, which which we'll get to because that's even more of a, of a strange occurrence because this guy had no intelligence background at all, and then you know, one year later it becomes the deputy director of NISA, then a year after that it becomes the full on director. But before we get into that, I think it's you know important to make one major caveat to all of this is that. Somali leaders with a history of jihadism or militancy is not uncommon. In fact, this is probably more the norm than it is abnormal. Um, and that's just mainly due, you know, the Somali civil war has been going on for so long. A lot of these people with real power, the real power brokers, are going to have some sort of history of militancy. Um, you saw that was with your, you know, Hassan Sheikh, the current president. He was close to Atlisla, Somalia's, you know, Muslim Brotherhood branch. You know, he was close to ICU. Um, another former president, um, Sharif Sheikh Ahmed, he was also a, a former leader of the ICU. Um, the president of Jubaland in southern Somalia, Ahmed Madobe, 
was also ICU's governor for Jubaland. So it's not uncommon for high-level Somali leaders to have this sort of history. The, the real story here is that those three aforementioned leaders were very open about that. They're very clear that you know, we had this history. Um, and they're also very vehemently anti-Shabaab. Um, but the they were repentant, you know. They, that's, right, that's, and, and that's that's the main thing here is they were very open about. Yes, I I was involved in this. With Yassine, this is a guy who played that like it was it was an open secret, right? The, that Yassine was part of the Al He had this jihadist background, but he never publicly admitted it. He never came out like, yes, I had this, but I'm doing this. If that makes sense, he was he never he always played coy with the idea that he was involved in this um until now when he's safe in turkey i guess he's he feels free to to admit it um and that's the key difference of like yes a lot of small leaders have these this background and that's that's fine if they're repentant and they want to work against Shabbat, they want to be an actual you know force for good in somalia but with yasin it's a little it's a lot more murky actually caleb and before we we move on um any thoughts as to why um at this point in time, after all of this, he comes out to, to tell us about his background. Uh, I mean, I just can't under, I, I can't think of understand his motivations for doing this. Honestly, I, I, I don't know. Um, I mean, it, it may just be he I mean, maybe he doesn't plan to come back to Somalia for a while. Maybe he he feels safer in Turkey. Uh, I, you know, I really don't know the motivations here. It, it's very interesting, though, that he would go for so long with, you know, never publicly admitting it or never confirming it than now confirming it in a random interview in Turkey. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's the timing of that. You know, he flees the country as you you note, and then he just spills the beans. I mean, it's almost like he doesn't, has no plans of coming back or taking a position. of power. No, maybe he realizes he's just that far gone that he's, he's tarnished his images within Somalia is just so tarnished that that no and just use this as a transition i mean in that same interview he was also going on a rant about the the disappearance of ikran tahwil of the the aforementioned female nisa officer he went on a whole rant about you know proclaiming his innocence proclaiming that you know it was actually shabab but in addition to shabab it was it was people in nisa who were against him and stuff like that so it was all wrapped up in a wider exoneration of himself essentially Okay, that's interesting. So uh, tell us about um, the controversy uh, related to him um, uh, while he was the secretary, particularly while he was the secretary of NISA. Okay, so this is this is going to be a lot. Um, so I apologize for the listeners now, but I'll try to keep it as condensed as possible because he was involved in so much over such a short little time relatively. Um, but I mean, during his time at NISA and even a little bit before he was NISA when he was the chief of staff, He's been accused of various different shady dealings and corruption. I mean, opponents of him and Formaggio have accused him of, you know, plotting the kidnappings and attacks on rival politicians. Um, there was an attack, I believe, in 2017 against a, a Somali politician who opposed Formaggio that, you know, critics of Yassin have accused him of, you know, weaponizing troops in the Somali military to go after that on behalf of Formaggio. Um, you know, some of this is involved, you know, with the put the further politization of NISA. Um, many parts of NISA just kind of became like the personal bagman or, you know, even hit squads for Yassin or for Majo. Um, there, there's a quote here from Abdullahi Muhammad Ali, who is a another former director of NISA. He wrote in 2020 in the national interest. I just want to quote this real quick. Um, the, essentially, 
So Yassin dismantled key pillars of the agency, systematically and methodically replaced professional and experienced operatives with amateur sycophants, and effectively served as a clearinghouse for Qatari intelligence operations in the Horn of Africa. NISA operations no longer focus on the battle against Shabab and are instead geared to silence political opposition and critical voices in civil society. You know, this is not just a one-off criticism of Yassin's time at NISA. This is, you know, a lot of people who were involved in NISA at this time were other Somali analysts, Somali watchers, researchers, were very much noting this change in NISA, noting this change in the Somali government, that the focus on Shabab was taken away during his time and more, more geared towards silencing or going after critics of him or Formaggio or the government in general. Um, and not only that, but, you know, Yassin oversaw the creation and training of, you know, several different specialized units within NISA. I mean, this includes the, you know, Ruhan force of the ghosts, Harmad, Cheetahs, or even the Gorgor special forces units and, and the small military, you know, these were trained by, trained or funded by Qatar and Turkey. Um, that are nominally part of the Somali military or NISA or the security apparatus, but really just operated as extensions of himself or Formaggio. And, you know, further Somali critics of, of, of Yassin and Formaggio have accused them of using these units um, for, you know, intra-Somali, you know, clan fighting. They were involved in, you know, personal squabbles in Jubaland against Ahmed Dobe, you know, during the election cycle, you know, this last election cycle, some of these units were sent to central Somalia to act as, quote unquote, you know, election integrity forces. But really, critics have accused them of, you know, doing voter intimidation tactics. Yeah, and, I mean, and, it, if I may, Caleb, real quick, I mean, you know, this isn't just a one off criticism from a political, you know, from maybe one of his political riders, rivals. This is the a former head of NISA that's saying. You know, he's dismantling the agency we built and building his own personal feet. And it's not just him. It's other members uh, of NISA. You know, we, we've seen other individuals come out and discuss this openly. It's, you know, and, and it's not just your standard, you know, corruption that exists and, you know, is endemic in countries like Somalia. We're not talking they're skimming from the cock trade or or the charcoal trade or ports, you know, skimming off the port in import fees and things like that. We're talking as political assassinations, rigging of elections, intimidation, you know, things of that nature. And that's right. I, I that's mean, it, that's it's, you know this is a standard corruption to do so. You know, yeah, it's well beyond standard level of corruption that uh, you see in many countries, even the US. I mean this is this is just insane. Um you know, and going back to this quote from the former NISA director, you know, he mentioned that Yassin is the 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 main Qatari connection. Um, I, I think it's important to note here that you know another large criticism of Yassin is his Qatari ties. I mean, obviously he was like we mentioned, he was a reporter for Al Jazeera for almost a decade. Clearly developed his Qatari ties. Then um, when he gets into you know these high level positions in the Somali government. You know, his critics allege that he starts favoring Qatar over other countries in terms of development or projects or funding or whatever. For Somalia, he favors Qatar. Um, and then some of the spilled over uh, of the wider Gulf rivalries, especially between Qatar and the UAE, you know, some of the spilled over to Somalia with, with Yassin's help, uh, you know, alleged help, I should say. It's never been proven, but a lot of his critics say that he helped Qatar gain an upper hand against the UAE and in, in Somalia and you know, one of the major pieces of evidence for this is is in 2019, I believe, um, there was a, a bombing in Basaso, which is Basaso is the main port town in northern Somalia. 
Um, the bombing was on uh, you know the port itself, which the port is ran by a UAE company. Um, there's a leaked audio, and this week this was leaked by the New York Times um, from the Qatari ambassador in Somalia to someone else in Qatar, talking about quote unquote our friends were behind this, um, and certainly relishing in the fact that UAE operations were hindered for a while in Basaso. Um, Somali critics have have accused Yassine of assisting in that operation somehow. They've been very coy and little again a little murky of how he was actually involved in that. But his critics have stated that he played a role in helping Qatar gain the upper hand in that. Um, and this is sort of the wider trend, I, I should say, of Qatar in Somalia. Of you know, other NISA officials, or I should say former NISA officials, have accused Yassine of being the middleman between Qatar and funding of shady figures in Somalia, even funding of Shabab in Somalia. Um, again, not necessarily definitively proven, but it's he's been accused of this by other NISA officials. You know, so not only is it, you know, kind of shady past in terms of jihadism, but now you have all these, you know, nefarious Qatar connections that are certainly at play here, um, which makes for, you know, this insanely more controversial figure, which gets into the last sort of big controversy with Yassine. And this is the what we keep talking about is the, the disappearance and murder of the female Nisa officer. Um, so this, 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 this woman, Ikran Tawil, she disappears in June, 2021 in Mogadishu. Um, you know, like I said earlier that, you know, some people have accused Shabab, Shabab is denied us. Some people have accused, you know, Yassine, um, which the critics for Yassine like to say that, you know, she was investigating, uh, you know, corruption by Fermaggio and, and Yassine, particularly with, the the his connections with Ethiopia. So during this time, there was the the large war in Ethiopia with the Tigray region. Um, there were reports that Somali troops were you know secretly sent to Eritrea, where they were trained, and then sent into Tigray to fight against the Tigrayans on the side of Ethiopia and Eritrea. Um, the, the evidence is more certainly looking like that is that is actually what happened. But during this time. In June 2021, it wasn't open out in the open. Um, and what happened is that you know critics of Formaggio and Yassine were accusing them of promising Somali soldiers to go to Qatar to get trained. Instead, they ended up in Ethiopia or Eritrea and fighting in Ethiopia. Uh, she was allegedly investigating this, um, and this is why Yassine's critics like to say that you know she was silenced essentially, that she was she was finding out too much. Uh, again, this has not been definitively proven, but this is what critics of Yassine say. Um, and this is a, a, a large controversy that boiled over to the highest levels of the Somali government. Um, after she was disappeared, there's a huge political row. Um, the prime minister of Somalia sacked Yassine as the, the NISA official, which created a huge internal squabble in the Somali government. You know, troops loyal to the, the prime minister were standing off against troops loyal to Formaggio and vice versa. It all related to this female Nisa officer and her disappearance that, again, still to this day, is still not definitively proven what happened to her. But given the evidence she just, that that does kind of prove that small troops were used in Tigray, something is, is certainly up there. And Yassine having this whole exoneration tour, this exoneration message in Turkey certainly sends another red flag that why he's taken the time to do his first public interview since 2012 
to spend, you know, 15 minutes talking about how innocent he is. Yeah. And I mean, you know, he protested too much. Uh, you know, one one interesting thing that popped in my head when you were discussing that, uh, you know, that he would be involved, might possibly be involved with sending Somali troops to to fight against the Tigrans. You know, at this point in time and currently today, you know, Shabab is is has the upper hand in Somalia. They're slowly but surely get taking control of territory. That Somali military is needed inside of Somalia. It's not, you know, the sending it over outside the country to fight someone else's war. That's just absolutely stunning to me that that's um, that he that that Somalia could have, you know, have the luxury of sending thousands of troops when Shabab controls significant territory throughout the country. Right. And not only that, you're directing other troops to do more of your political bidding rather than actually taking the fight to Shabab, which, you know, Yassin's critics have a point with that of the fight against Shabab was absolutely became, you know, a second tier focus for the Somali government during Yassin's time in, in Nisa. Uh, or rather the government as a whole, is it became more about securing him and Farmaja and their power in Somalia rather than defeating their, their largest enemy. Um, and certainly, you know, sending troops, you know, thousands of troops to Eritrea secretly to Eritrea uh, does not look good for you. Yeah, exactly. Well, all of this, uh, Caleb, we're going to, you know, th- this raises a lot of difficult and very likely um, unanswerable questions for us. Let's uh, Let's discuss some of them. Um, first, uh, his history um, with AIAI, um, did, do you think that that influenced his actions um, inside the Somali government? Do you think he, he was more, was he sympathetic to Shabab? He says he's still a committed Salafist. Um, or do you think this is more about Qatar? Is it possibly there's a combination of the both? We have to, too, we also have to keep in mind that the Qataris are certainly not above supporting jihadist groups see Syria and, and elsewhere. Um, so, you know, sometimes there could be a little bleed over there. What do you think about that issue? Right. I, I you know, I, I tend to lean more towards the Qatari angle. Um, I think his, his jihadist history is certainly worth discussing and worth, you know, putting out there that he was a member of AIAI. But I, I think certainly the Qatari angle has more influence of what happened during his time in government than the jihadist angle. I mean, some, some critics of Yassin have, Certainly, we talked about the quote-unquote jihadist takeover of the Somali government, uh, but I don't know if that's necessarily that far. I think it's more of this is a man who is entirely corrupt, who is entirely all about his own power and his friend's power in Formaggio, and he, you know, essentially to use you know a Russian term, you know, there might have been compromise that Qatar had on him. Qatar was, you know, certainly weeding a lot of the things that that Formaggio was implementing or trying to implement in, in Somalia. Um, so to me, it's more of that angle. And, you know, there is this, you know, term developed by Alex DeWall, the political marketplace. Uh, essentially, you know, these local actors have to, you know, the local stakeholders, the policymakers have to abide by what is the, the political marketplace of that country. And certainly Shabab, or I'm sorry, excuse me, Somalia is all about, you know, power and fighting and certainly you know these certain small levels of corruption but Yassin takes it to a whole other level um and certainly aided by Qatari money yeah I, I couldn't agree with you more I think the best way that I would describe is he leveraged 
very likely leveraged his jihadist to uh, Salafist contacts in order to um, to gain influence in order to right work with the Qataris, right? You know that you know, and he may not be a big fan of the Qataris, but that's certainly a means to an end. His political power, the power of Formaggio's, um, that to me seems to be more the most of. It seems like he worked with anyone in order to get what he wants to secure right. his the political power. That's that's where I lean on. I don't know if it's necessarily the the Salafist or the jihadist background. It's more of like this is a man who clearly wanted a place in that political marketplace, and he was willing to take whatever route it it, it took to get there. Um, and to me, that's what it looks like. Is certainly the this. You know, big man politics is what he wanted to do. Yeah. So, how does he go from a reporter to the head of the country's intelligence agency with no, no, no ex- real experience at all? I mean, we we touched on this earlier, but to me, I mean, you know, and he didn't serve in the military that we could tell, right? He didn't wasn't a police officer where you could at least have some understanding of how security situations, how how to administer a, a security bureaucracy, um, how you would actually deal with information and intelligence that comes in from the street. I um, This one stuns me. What, what are your thoughts on that, Caleb? I'm also stunned. I think most people are stunned. Um, this is certainly a recurring question that you see a lot of like, how exactly did this man who have no background in intelligence become the head of the country's entire intelligence agency? Um, again, Yassin's critics like to point out the Qatari connections that certainly Qatar might have leveraged funding or support for some sort of project with Fromajo to make him, you know, essentially the, the intel guy to further Qatar's interest. You know, the, there's certainly that argument. Um, I, I think personally that makes the most sense to me. Uh, there could obviously be other explanations of, you know, playing patronage with a, with a guy who, you know, really helped Formaggio gain votes. You know, I, I don't know. I, I tend to lead more towards the Qatar angle, but it's certainly open in the question here. Yeah, no, look, I, I don't think we, we can't answer these questions. No. We're, just, we're sort of mulling this over and trying to put the pieces together. I mean, the more that we go through this, though, I think we see that Qatar... Um, that car Qatar connection, Qatari connection really seems to. No, and I, I think this is like the larger point here is like you have all, we have the golf competition in, in Somalia. You also have Turkey trying to get involved and they're also trying to undermine UAE. They're trying to undermine Qatar. They're working together with Qatar in certain things. You know, this has become, you know, a globalized sort of competition for, you know, Middle Eastern states, just like it would in the Middle East. I mean, it, it's, it wouldn't shock me that Qatar and UAE, for that matter, have certain people in the small government on their payroll or certainly supporting different people, just like they do, our, you know, across the Middle East. Yeah, exactly. Do you think his, um, you've seen Qatari connections had any impact on how he treated Shabab? Did we see any evidence that Nisa was more permissive towards Shabab or past intelligence, anything like that? I mean, this is the the wider question, I think, of like, was Nisa more infiltrated during his his time time there? Um, which, you know, other than, you know, uh, another former Nisa director accusing Yassin of being the middleman between Qatar and Shabab in terms of funding, there's not much else public record um, out there on this. There, we could certainly, certainly speculate based on trends, um, attack trends of Shabab or certainly what they were doing during his time in, in, in office. But 
I, I tend to think that it probably did have more, you know, favorable con- conditions for Nisa to become more infiltrated. Um, you know, this is the man that was using Nisa, as we said, uh, more f- for political gains than going after Shabab. Um, Shabab was on the rise. Shabab was likely able to do certain things. Uh, you know, the, they're still taxing roads. Why, you know, small government hasn't done anything about that or tried to do anything about that. All sort of questions here that really are, are way way more difficult than you and I can answer. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you mentioned the politicization of Nisa, and I would we could probably say the infiltration of Nisa as well. How bad do you do you think it was and and still is compromised or, or infiltrated? Do you think that um, we're looking at you know is does he still have? top leaders and the key posts there. What do we know about that, Caleb? Right. I mean, this is, this is what, you know, the, the former, you know, Nisa had said in that national national interest article is that, you know, he replaced a lot of Nisa officials with sycophants, with people that would do his bidding with doing his orders. You know, now that Yassin is gone, are those people still in Nisa? I don't know. Or will a new Nisa head remove them? Yeah, how do you remove them? Can you remove them? Does this require, you know, a full, you know, house cleaning? Does this require a full institutional, you know, reshuffling? You know, I, I don't know. Um, but the fact that Yassine was able to basically make the organization work for him, or large parts of the organization work for him, certainly suggests that, you know, it's more than just a handful of people. Yeah. Yeah. You, you're anticipating my next question there. Do you think it's fixable or does this thing need to be? torn down to the studs or do you think it just needs to be de- de- demolished right i mean i'm it's sure it's too difficult to judge right? I, I mean i think it's too difficult to judge i mean i i'm almost 100 positive there's still people out there wanting to take the fight to shabab there 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 most certainly is there are people in nisa there are people in the small government that get it there are people in the small intelligence agencies the security services that actually want to do better for their country uh, unfortunately, people like Yassine took that away from them, but hopefully now that he's gone, they can rebuild. But in terms of what that takes, I, I honestly don't know. Yeah. And think about it. Um, if it's, I mean, for, at the very least, it needs to be evaluated by the Somali yeah. government, right? And while you're in the middle of a hot war with Shabab, again, that's, you know, slowly gaining the upper hand day by day as if, as in its fight. I mean, I think that's that's the main question for for Hassan Sheikh, the the new president. Of how far does that that institutional rot go for his for his intelligence service? It's it, it, you know, if if it was me, the easiest thing to do is just completely tear it down, and then make people reapply, and you know, take it on a case by case basis. But you'd be tearing down your again your national security uh, apparatus when you need them the most. That's the, that's what you've seen appears to have left behind that's his legacy is that is that is now his legacy of essentially making the somali state which is already weak relatively weak weaker of now that you've you've taken the focus away from shabbat for so long that it's going to be more difficult for hashan sheikh and his new you know intelligence officials new security officials to to really take that fight back um which hopefully they can yeah i i concur so um Look, we'll, we'll talk about the United States involvement here, right? We know that the United States interacts with NISA, the CIA, the Department of Defense. Um, either the United States knew who he, what you've seen, what he is, right? 
they they understood his less than palatable past and his character or they didn't know either they knew it and they worked with him or they didn't know neither is good right this is the same argument i made with afghanistan with respect to negotiation with the taliban either the state department and u.s officials and the trump administration and the department of defense which also endorsed it, the negotiations either they knew that the Taliban was lying and they were cutting a deal with them anyway, or they thought that the Taliban was being sincere. Neither is good. I would argue if um, the cynical one, I don't know. I don't even know what's worse. What's worse. What, what is your opinion? Do you, do you think the U S knew about him um, and just keep working with him regardless? Um, or do you think that they were in the dark? Uh, there's no way that the U S Intel community didn't know all of this. Um, there's absolutely no way. Um, especially since, a lot of this was an open secret for so long um, among Somalia, you know, watchers or researchers or Somali, you know, officials and stuff. There's no way they didn't know. Um, but in terms of, you know, which one is worse, I don't know. Like they're both pretty bad options. I, I tend Either to you're they, ignorant or you're, yeah. you're, uh, I don't even have a word for, you know, colluding with, with evil. Right. Right. Which uh, even if they knew, I don't know what they could have done about it. I'll never advocate that the U S should remove another foreign official. I, I, I don't think we should do that. But there are certain things that the U.S. could have or should have done in terms of refusing to work with this guy, putting pressure on Formaggio to make institutional changes or something. Cutting off but, funding. I'm sure the U.S. Yeah, cutting off funding. funding. I mean, it, there, there are certain things that they could have done short of actively promoting the removal of foreign officials. But it certainly looks bad for us too that you know we we certainly knew of this continued to support this this corrupt government in you know the hopes of trying to combat shabab but at the same time the government that we were supporting is actively not going after shabab so it's kind of a self perpetuating cycle of defeatism almost yeah and so the us obviously very likely was working with mesa to gather intelligence to conduct strikes on Shabab, right? That's something we tracked right. uh, for years at the Lone War Journal. That's most certainly what happened is the intelligence sharing from NISA for those strikes. Right. And now the U.S. ended those. That was, President Trump withdrew from Somalia. What year? I'm like, I'm in a time warp here, Caleb. Is that, was that? Uh, in, I've said this before on the podcast. Time is a social construct. And in the, the years of COVID, like time, I, it's all so bad with time now. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm in with you. Anything that happened between, for me, between... 2019 and early 2022 is just a complete right so. no it, it was I, I believe it was either late 2020 or early 2021 right right so the the u.s withdrew but the the strikes against shabab significantly decreased even before then it was they were like a couple of year by the by the time the u.s withdrew and then we've just had two strikes this year that have been recorded um, there wasn't stri any strikes once the U.S. left um, for almost a year. Um, do you think that uh, this has a anything to do with uh, Yassine, or is that just a coincidence? I think it's just a coincidence. Um, I mean, he was in government for, you know, started with the chief of staff in 2017, became NISA in 2018. But, you know, there were still, you know, drone strikes happening at that time. You know, I I, I don't think it, I think it's more of a coincidence. I, I I certainly think that you know there were certain counterintuitive or counterproductive things he was doing in terms of the fight, as as we've discussed. But I don't know if any of this impacted the ability for us to to do strikes. Um, certainly, and Yassine's critics have argued that maybe he had 
leverage some of his contacts to warn certain Shabab leaders or stuff like that, or, you know, maybe have, you know, prevented some people from being hit by strikes, but that's, that's, you know, conjecture. It hasn't been proven yet. Um, or if, it, if, it, if it's even true, remotely true. Um, but in terms of my own political belief, I think it's more of a coincidence. I suspect you're right. I, I, from just from tracking the strikes, a lot of those actually over time, tended to to take to not go after Shabab's top top leaders. And this is going back a decade or more. Right. I mean, like, you have the self-defense strikes, right? Exactly, the, right. What we call so, self-defense strikes. Yeah. Or they'd hit a training camp that was, you know, taking out 20 guys or a, su- a suicide bomber on a motorcycle or something like that. They were, yeah, they were, the, as you note, the self-defense strikes, which were typically when Somali troops came under contact and usually accompanied by u.s military advisors um, right and there were mid-level commanders of shabab that were taken out certainly commanders of large attacks that we you know especially after the the mandabay attack in kenya we took out the commander that led that but certainly the, the top echelon of shabab haven't really hit anyone in that level since you know zubair in 2014. yeah and i, I think that speaks really well of uh shabab's counterintelligence and its ability to um you know, protect its leaders. I, yeah, they, I think they've done a really good job of that over the years. Uh, we've only killed one leader, one one top leader, Shabab. I mean, the Islamic State's lost, what, three and two or three, right? Or they're on their third now and in since 2014. So, you know, Shabab's, uh, you know, not to compare, but- no, the, and, I mean, that's my- that's my question for a lot of the Yassin's critics of I like to say that he passed intelligence on to Shabab, which is certainly possible, not going to rule it out, but- you know, I think it's more of Shabab's institutional learning of how to organize their leadership, how to do all of that to protect themselves from the strikes, and also the U.S. waning the strikes. You know, those two things play more of a role in this than anything nefarious that Yassin might have done. Yeah, and, the, and you know, the scrutiny over strikes in Yemen, in in Afghanistan, and in in Somalia, um, I think played a very you know as the U.S becomes more and more judicious and which strikes it should launch. Um, I think the, the U.S. military and the CIA sort of lost the eye of the tiger and started to become far more concerned about um, the, the optics of the strikes, whether over whether they were actually killing people of significance. Right. That it's impacts more of those time. two things. You, you start becoming casualty averse when you start becoming um, when the mission becomes, let's not make the news um, for doing something wrong, uh, it really, really impacts uh, how things go in, in the, you know, in the targeting. Yeah, I think it's definitely more external factors at play. I mean, Yassin's sure. a bad guy, don't get me wrong. Like, he did a lot of bad things. I'm not a fan in any way. I think he did a lot of bad for Somalia. But, you know, I don't think this metric is it. Yeah, no, and I didn't raise that question to try to impugn him, but to actually make the point that we we had just made here, right? That's he, you know, pro- a very bad actor, but you know, I think people have a tendency with individuals like Yassine is to blame every single thing on him. And right, I mean, he certainly had his hand in a lot, but he certainly didn't have his hand on everything. Right, exactly. Oh, one last question, Caleb, um, and and thank you know, thanks for your time here. Um, you know. Beyond just you seeing, um, if all these allocations uh, about him are true, what are the wider impl- implications 
of uh, the Gulf countries meddling in Somalia that that could make security even worse in that country, as if that's possible. I mean, no, I mean, this is a, this is a great question. I think people need to be more, you know, cognizant of of you have all these Gulf actors, you know, more than just Gulf. You also have Turkey. You have yeah. you know China's trying to get involved. I mean, there's all sorts of different actors trying to get involved here. But I think the the attack on Basaso in 2019 is the most emblematic of this. Of you know, if Gulf meddling is going to rise to, to the point of you know, Gulf states are, you know, promoting or somehow tipping off militants or something for attacks against their, you know, rifle state, you know, that that's going to play out in Somalia. People, Somalis are going to be the victims of those attacks for Gulf rivalries. Um, certainly the Gulf states don't care about that, but, you know, me, I do care about that. I think this is something that we probably will see more of, of as Qatar, UAE, and Turkey gets more involved in Somalia for all these investment projects. You know, there's going to be competition that plays out. Unfortunately, then Somalis are going to die from it, just like what happened in Basaso. I don't think anyone died in Basaso. People were injured, but that's more of an emblematic of, of the current trend that we'll probably see rather than anything. Of you're going to have these states vie for power, vie for influence, vie for you know certainly economic interests in Somalia that was on a port. Uh, there's other ports being built. There's other things being built that you know Qatar, UAE, and Turkey are trying to take influence over. And it's like around the Middle East, it'll probably end up with with violence. Yeah, um, countries we've already like, seen that. We've already seen that. So it, it's not a stretch to to say it will. Yeah, countries like Somalia and Yemen, these you know top tier failed states, they become the playground of everyone and the, those who pay or the the average Somali, the average Yemeni who just want to feed their kids and, and survive. Um, this is the oh, one thing I know you've been to numerous conflict zones as a buy. This is the one thing, you know, covering this stuff, you know, the jihadists make this stuff bad. And then the intervention, then when, once it becomes the playground of foreign powers, it, it just, it escalates. And that's why dragging these wars out and not seeking real ends to these wars, but doing the minimum, Doing the bare minimum, let's just put 700 troops in Somalia and we'll keep a lid on the problem. Well, keeping the lid on the problem sometimes could be worse than the alternative. Right. And it and extends I, these conflicts and, and makes life a living hell for, for the average person living there. Playground of foreign powers is the best way to put it. Uh, I mean, certainly Turkey, Qatar, UAE, they, they do build objectively good things in Somalia. I mean, they've built hospitals, schools, roads, whatever. Um but unfortunately, Somalia is, is a violent place, and their competition will will be violent as as it goes further. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a sad story. It's one we're going to keep watching at the Long War Journal and at the here I mean, Generation Journal. I mean, just to end this on a good note, though. I mean, at least you've seen and Formaggio are gone. You know, an entirely corrupt government's gone. There's hope for rebuilding. There's hope for you know institutional change. There's hope for Somalia. I just hope that that momentum continues. The U.S. can hopefully support that momentum, and hopefully we see you know a better Somalia rise up. Yeah, well said. You know, like in in all this horror, maybe there is an opportunity to rebuild Nisa as well, right? To get it back to to a, a place where it can be a force for good in Somalia. And not just Nisa. I mean, the, the, the oh, absolutely, the, yes. the, the full military, the the Somali government at large. I mean, this is, I, I think, with as corrupt government as Formajo's now being gone. There is a real potential for change for Somalia, and I, I think people should be hopeful for that. And I think people, the listeners, should take away from this that you know there is a silver lining to all of this. Is these bad actors are gone, 
there's time for change. Yeah, they the the current Somali leaders just need to capitalize on this. They need to be Somalis and not be members of their clan and their political party and their their interest groups. That's been a real problem in Somalia, and hopefully, this uh, this new government can can overcome those problems. Which we didn't even talk about the clan dynamic of this. Which yeah. I mean, I know we're trying to wrap this up. Yeah, that no, was it's another okay, criticism yeah. of you. We could do this for Maja. hours, right? No, I mean, another criticism of them is like for recruitment for the military is like the critics were like, well, you're just recruiting on clan lines. You're just trying to recruit people from your own clan to further, you know, shield or protect your your own regime. You know, this is this is something that Somalia needs to get away from, um, which, uh, you know, this is this is nothing new to, to many people who know Somalia. But, you know, the clanism is is, is its own undoing. You know, they, they definitely need to be more more, you know federalist approach rather than clan again this is nothing new but hopefully with the new government we can get away from this there, there's again potential for change the u.s should absolutely continue to support that and you know i'm hopeful uh, you know we have to be hopeful or else uh, this this job can be quite depressing and- no I, I genuinely want to see a secure yeah. somalia i genuinely want to see somalia succeed um and now that you know a terrible government is out there's there's potential you know, I I joke about this, but nothing would make me happier for jihadism to be defeated and me, for me to have to seek another career. Um, I, so I wish the best for Somalia. I hope for the defeat of the Taliban and a return to a reasonable government in Afghanistan. And I would like all of this to end. The reality is, is this it's it's a long war. Um, the the enemy gets a vote and they're they're willing they're fighting on in ways that we're unwilling to fight and fighting on timelines that we're unwilling to fight and that unfortunately is a degree of job security for folks like you and me but believe me i'd love to stop looking at these evil people and um do something a little bit more cheery with my life now i think that's uh, some people who like to call us jihadologists don't understand of i genuinely care about these people yeah of the victims of of this yeah. of this violence, I, I want to see it end. Nothing broke my heart more, Caleb, than um, going on patrol with the U.S. Marines in Iraq and seeing, you know, talking to Iraqi people that uh, the citizens that uh, you know who had their families killed in suicide bombings and who just wanted this to end. Who want you know in. That just it, it broke my heart and like the real the biggest victims of these wars of jihadist violence are those living in those countries. We think it's us on 9-11, but you know, individuals like you and I, we get it. We see who the real victims, the who, who suffer the, not that, don't get me wrong, those Americans and Westerners killed, but we're only a fraction of those right. who Comparatively, are Comparatively, the locals by. suffer way worse than what we did on 9-11. Um, and you know, there's tons of 9-11s happening all the time to, to locals on the ground from these groups. Uh, hopefully one day it stops, but until then, we're here to talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the only way, you know, we, we provide a service, or I believe our service is to help educate people on what's happening, help them understand. You know, we say this all the time, Caleb, we, if you want to have a chance to beat your enemy, you have to understand who they are. And I think this has been the biggest problem. That's a whole nother podcast that we've had before, but if we don't understand who our enemy is, not just enemy jihadist enemies, but in people within governments who sabotage as well, they can be enemies of peace as well. We have to understand them. And that's, uh, that's what we do here at Generation Jihad. We try and, you know, peel back a layer or two of the onion and right. cry in the process. And we're not perfect about it, but, you know, hopefully it generates discussion. It generates, you know, certain, you know, internal thinking among 
certain relevant policymakers, stakeholders, whatever. But at the end of the day, that's that's what we're here to do. Amen to that. Caleb, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, always a pleasure to have you on. And I'll have you on every episode. Be- we'll make it out talking about it. <laughs> no pressure, Caleb. I didn't know that. <laughs> Caleb, you have a great one. Everyone, thanks. <laughs>